Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's mentally yours from Ellen and uh, focus on your mental health, you surely won't regret. It's mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. Welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly podcast about all things mental health. I'm Ellen. And I'm Yvette. And today we're chatting to Pragya Agarwal. She's a writer, speaker and behavioural scientist. She's joined us on the podcast before twice, um, most recently as a panellist on Mentally Yours Live. Today, we're going to be chatting to her about her new book, Sway. So you're joining us today to chat a bit about your new book, Sway. What made you decide to write this? It's been a long time coming. Um, It was a combination of the academic research I did, which was all about bias and technology. So I had been thinking about bias and whose views get represented and all the whole notion of power and hierarchy in data. And I was working a lot in mapping technologies during my PhD and soon after. um, So did that, but then also kind of a culmination of my personal personal experiences as a woman, as a woman of color, as a woman in STEM, the first female lecturer, woman lecture appointment, in a appointed in a engineering department, um, a top leading engineering department in the UK, just navigating these spaces where you feel like sometimes you don't fit in, you belong, and then you kind of feel like you're part of two worlds being almost British, but not quite Indian and all those kind of things. And racially profiled at some point, having to talk to my daughter about race, but also sexism and misogyny. I mean, all those things that you experience in your life, but that combined with my academic interest and research interests, the whole interdisciplinary notion of what is bias and how it affects us in a society kind of came together. And I also realized that people were talking about a lot about unconscious bias and I was working with a number of organizations on diversity and inclusivity for a couple of years and I, I was writing about it, but then it kind of um, 
was becoming like a trendy word and people were just using it as a buzzword without really knowing what it means. And so I thought that we really needed to know and do a deep dive into what it really means. Can you explain what unconscious bias does mean? (laughs) Which might be a big question, but I think you're right. It's worth us actually breaking down what it is. Yeah, it it is a big question and that's what the whole book is about. Um, But um, in in brief and and just very simplistically speaking, it's just those biases within us, those kind of um, the things that affect us, uh, our decisions and our judgments of people and our interactions, which we sometimes are not aware of, or we don't voice them, or we don't realize them. So so there are some explicit preferences, like I would say I prefer a certain flavor of ice cream or a certain cereal, and those are very explicit. But then when it comes to certain kind of um, implicit things that we have, a template in our brain that are dependent on things we've learned through our life, these kind of learned behaviors, but we don't know often that these are affecting the way we are behaving and the decisions we are making. So those are our unconscious biases. And how can the book help people to understand their own personal biases and prejudices, do you think? What I really wanted to do in a book is create this kind of non-judgmental and very very non-preachy. And so a couple of people who read the book, like Angela Saini and Nikesh Shukla, and, and um, they also said that it's a very non-polemic, kind of non-preachy attitude to to bias because people can get very defensive when you start talking to them about their biases. And so I didn't really want to like stand on my soapbox and talk about it. But I, in, in the way that I brought in research and facts and evidence, but personal stories also, and combined a lot of different disciplines, slowly and, and, uh, and kind of in a very accessible manner, I hope that as people read it, they become more aware of how these biases affect our decisions and interactions in a way that sometimes we are not aware of them. But then it helps them, gives them a space to actually start reflecting on their own biases. And this is what people, all the readers who are reading it, are telling me that they hadn't even realized some of the things that they they come across in the book. And they are really becoming more aware of what the kind of prejudices they might carry without them realizing it, things they've learned. And I also wanted to talk more about not just the racism and sexism, but also which are the biases that we often talk about, but also other kinds of biases, like cognitive biases like hindsight bias and status quo bias and how we interpret information and how politics, partisan politics affects our view of the world and and ageism and accents and also a big areas, technology and bias. And I really wanted to talk through all these things in a way by bringing in as many studies and personal stories and contemporary case studies as possible so that people get a kind of a full-fledged view, a framework of bias. It's really interesting because um, in the book, you, you make a point of saying everyone carries biases. Because um, I think a lot of us, we sort of may think, well, you know, somebody, you know, says racist things or somebody's sexist. Um, but then we don't sort of think, oh, but, you know, maybe I have certain prejudices. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting. What I wanted to ask really about what you think about the um, the discourse at the moment um, around the death of George Floyd, because obviously a lot of people are now talking about um, racism and everything. And it seems like on Twitter and other sort of social media, things have got sort of fairly heated, which is, you know, fair enough. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Racism is something that that is one of those things where people 
actively form this kind of notions of who's not part of the group or who does not belong based merely on skin color, which is very stereotyping people. And so this is very problematic and toxic because this, the roots lie in active stereotyping about how whole communities and whole groups of people are, are homogenized and dehumanized because of their skin color. And, and when these labels and attributes are assigned to them, then, then they are treated differently. They don't have the same opportunities. They don't have same access to things. They also face more police brutality and violence, which is what we have seen recently. And so mm-hmm. it is good that these conversations are happening now. And we are now moving towards ethnicity pay gap, like publishing pay. We talked about how publishing um, industries and media industries, we're talking and hearing how it's so systemic and so structural. So from seeing one example, we're moving towards that it's not just one person's problem. It's actually a systemic thing that's been going on for so long and it affects people in every walks of life and who are the gatekeepers, who are giving the opportunities and we're talking more about it. And I think what is really interesting that finally people are talking about microaggressions, which which affects so many people of color. These kind of things that are brushed aside that are seemingly very small, but they really have a huge mental and physical impact on people who encounter them. So I think these discussions are really good right now. And I've been kind of watching and actively participating, but also, I mean, people are beginning to talk about how to talk about race and racism with children. And I mean, this is a conversation that the thing is that this is a conversation that shouldn't happen just just now. And I, what I, I'm slightly worried about is this momentum, how long is this mm-hmm. going to last this time? And where is it going to go and whether it's going to continue and people are going to continue this education and learning and reflecting or rather once it's finished, then we'll move on with our lives and retreat back into our little bubbles. Um, yeah, I mean, parents are becoming more engaged about how do we talk about racism with our children, which like last year when I did the BBC Women's Art thing, I got so many abusive messages about how I was creating more problem by talking about racism rather than actually solving anything and telling me that children are colorblind. And I address that in the book as well, because it's a huge topic for me personally um, as a as a parent. So I think it's good, this momentum, this is happening. Um, I think we just need to be aware that people acknowledge the status quo and, and the discomfort that some of these conversations cause and the fact that um, people don't realize the privilege they might have carried so far, which is which when questioned can cause people discomfort as well. So I think those are some of the things we need to think about. Mm, definitely. So basically some people are getting in contact saying you just simply shouldn't talk about it and the best thing to do was to just never talk about racism and then it wouldn't exist. Is that essentially what they were saying? Well, they were saying the children don't notice race and color and you, I mean, yeah, that's, that's I think a lot of people view it as talking about racism as an anti-white agenda. And I just, um, because my book just came out in the U.S. last week, I was asked by my U.S. publisher to do a Reddit AMA and ask me anything thing. And while a lot of people were really engaged and genuinely really interested in finding out more, there were some people who said you that I'm propagating an anti-white agenda or people who are talking about racism are doing that or indoctrinating children by talking about race and racism and they shouldn't be made to feel like a victim. Um, and I 
genuinely think that unless we really tackle these things and unless we raise our children to be anti-racist and talk about racial justice, we cannot move further on and we cannot really address some of these systemic things that are happening in our world. And um, yeah, I think that's what it comes down to really. Mm, absolutely. I think one of the reasons there's discomfort is people think that if you are guilty of maybe benefiting from or partaking in racism, you are automatically a bad person, you're racist, you're awful, and you must therefore be committing these kind of over awful acts. Whereas there's a really important distinction between those and microaggressions, as you mentioned, and unconscious biases. Can you explain a bit about why those seemingly smaller and less obvious forms of racism are still, you know, they still have an impact on our mental well-being and how we see the world? Yeah, I mean, the thing is that obviously we don't see very many acts of blatant hate crimes in the UK. And that's why there is this myth that we are living in a post-racial society and we are constantly debating whether racism still exists. But as we are seeing now and as people of colour and especially the black community are sharing their experiences of the the things they've faced the through through different in different domains um, from people, from other people, which have made them feel very othered, which have made them feel like they don't fit, they're different, they don't belong in this domain, which have, which may make them feel often that um, they, they are just there in that space because they were brought in to tick a box of diversity and it's not because of their own some kinds of mm. um, merit alone or their capabilities. That can cause people to doubt themselves, doubt their capabilities, uh, lower their self-esteem. It can, the whole, and the biggest thing is that it can, because it's, these are small and often disguised as jokes or just small throwaway comments, what it causes is people to doubt themselves, whether they are being oversensitive, whether they are overreacting, whether it's just in their head or it's a problem that really exists. You can never pinpoint it, whether it's due to racism, whether it's due to something or whether it's personal. And that really causes mm. stress and anxiety and huge, huge issues. And there's been research to show that about how it does that. But another thing about that is already people who are stereotype or who are part of the marginalized community or part of vulnerable groups, when they step into domains where they already feel and know that they don't belong, they carry this stereotype threat, which means that they they are already this anxiety about them not fitting in, about the fact that they will be stereotyped and about they might feel microaggressions. So they already that affects their mental health and their performance, which becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in the fact they don't perform very well. And it's just not racism, but also like in sexism, like women stepping into STEM domains and maths and science groups as well. And if they think that they, they're not as good at maths as boys, you know, we've seen that with a lot of people I work with. So, um, so those kind of things cause anxiety and stress and, but the fact is that it's never easy to justify those comments. and But they come from some kind of deep-rooted stereotypes that people hold. And so while actively that person might not be trying to discriminate or prejudice or stigmatize, it still comes from a deep-seated stereotype which needs to be addressed. So that is how microaggressions make people feel anxious mm. No, that's why, I mean, I've, I found the book sort of really interesting because you've, you've got obviously loads of research in there, but you do also add in 
um, sort of personal stories and stuff. And and you said sort of you talked about um, when you became um, an is it a professor of engineering, and um, you sort of experienced microaggressions yourself there. It's I think they they can sort of feel quite hard to pin down because it's almost like it feels to me like it's like a death of a thousand cuts almost. So maybe each individual comment isn't a huge thing. And that's why it's so difficult because if you went to management to say about that one comment, it could get dismissed, but it's the, the cumulative effect. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes. And as we are seeing that, as we are seeing now people sharing their stories on social media, especially Twitter, there's so many people now talking about it. It does affect about the self-confidence of somebody who can say, I deserve more in this space, you know. They mm. think I deserve a higher pay. I deserve to be paid more. I deserve to be leading more projects. I deserve more promotion. I deserve more leadership. Um, I, those kind of things, that feeling that I deserve more can be really chipped away, you know. By Is that something that you found mm. difficult on a personal level? Have you found it kind of chipped away your confidence? There has been instances, but I feel that every person is different and I I think I do carry some sort of privileges of of um, being educated and all that but still that doesn't mean that people I haven't faced those but I've always I personally I've carried a certain amount of kind of an armor I suppose of of that I I do belong I, I carry that confidence that I belong in a space if I step in it and yes, I have faced microaggressions, I've faced workplace bullying, I've faced all that. But some people might be more vulnerable than others. Some people might have more, um, might be more fragile than others. So I think it will affect different people in different ways. But it doesn't, the, the problem still remains about who is able to step up and say mm. something against it. Even if you feel confident and if you feel like I'm not going to let this affect me or this is, doesn't matter, still it's very difficult to step up and talk, speak up against it. That is the, the where the problem lies about these microaggressions. In the book, you also talk about um, bias in um, in health professionals, which I thought was fascinating because I think a lot of us think, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, you know, we love the NHS. Thank God for all that, you know, they've done it recently and they're doing it at the moment. But it was very interesting um, when you were talking in the book about how um, basically because they're all human, they all have biases, whether they, they know it or not. And um, you mentioned how in there um, that black people face um, bias from health staff and also that women are less likely to be taken seriously. Yes, um, yes. I, and I wrote an independent article just before the whole lockdown and pandemic started as well about how biases might affect um, the black and other people of non-black people of color um, as well during this time, which is now what we are seeing, that there is a higher proportion of people of certain ethnicities who are succumbing to the virus. And although the discussion sometimes dangerously veer into biological essentialism, that that perhaps there is some genetic differences. I personally really strongly believe that there are because of the systemic and structural inequities that exist in our society. Um, yes, um, it's, it's there's a lot of research to show that, yes, black women die more during pregnancy and childbirth. There's higher maternity mortality in black women. That is a proven fact now. There's a lot of data in there. Um, and um, yes, about how women pain is not taken as seriously. They, they often feel that 
overreacting because there is this bias about gender, how gender and emotion intersects. And um, there is a trope about angry black women, but also there's a trope that women are more emotional. We I talk about in the book, there are people who have said that, like Marco Pierre White said, that, the, that women are more emotional in the kitchen, men are less emotional, and so that you can rely on them more. And so these kind of perpetuate these kind of stereotypes that women perhaps react more strongly to things or more emotionally to things. And there is these stereotypes which affect, which will, which affect people. And often healthcare decisions are being made in very quickly. And even though they have a whole load of like templates already existing in their brain, past experiences, um, just all the things that they have, which they, they fall back on by making these decisions. Sometimes they can cause errors as well because because of certain stereotypes that might exist within society. And you, you also wrote about, so you've had your own experience of this. Um, you mentioned in the book about um, an experience with your daughter. I'm not sure how old she was, but when she was a baby, was that right? Yes. Um, so I talk about the whole notion of gut instinct and how we're often told that we need to fall back on our gut instinct. And so I start the chapter with this anecdote about how when my daughter, one of my twins, was just one, um, she was really ill. And um, it had been like for two, three weeks, we've been going back and forth to the emergency, to, to the ch- children's hospital, to our GP and every time we were being told that just a virus, they can't find anything. So just keep giving her and like calpol and paracetamol and just giving her fluids. And came to that we were actually putting some fluids in her mouth through syringe because she wasn't taking anything. And that morning she just looked really ill. And we'd been to the emergency the night before and they'd sent us back home again. And that morning I just picked her up, drove her to the children's hospital, which is half an hour from us, and just sat there and actually... I was really insistent that they admit her right there and then. And I don't know whether it was a maternal instinct or intuition or whatever we call it. We call it a parental instinct sometimes. But it is accumulation of experiences that we have, or maybe it's a primal instinct. Um, And they admitted her, and within like five minutes, she had gone into septic shock, and her heart rate had spiked. And if she wasn't there, then we could have lost her that day. So... So that was quite a nightmare situation, which still comes back mm-hmm. to me. It's quite tricky. Mm. But I suppose what I'm asking is, do you feel the health professionals in that sort of setting were not taking you as seriously as they might have done if you'd been a white man sort of charging in there with with a kid? Yes, I don't know. I, as being a woman of colour, I think I've got used to this where where people sometimes don't take you seriously um, because just because you're either you're a woman or a woman of colour and... Uh, and um, there are there are there is research to show that so so it's impossible for me to say why they do not take me seriously but they they were falling back on their existing templates to show that they this was not a problem perhaps and so this is this is why sometimes when people are making really quick decisions we have to be more aware of our biases and prejudices because then we are more likely to fall back on these kind of existing, pre-existing templates, which are ridden with errors. What's the next step? How can we tackle that? How can we begin to kind of, uh, you know, fix the massive issue of lifetime of experience and all those stereotypes that are, as you say, really deep-rooted? Yeah, I think that the issue is that every time somebody asks me this question, and also while reading the book, I think people come to the book expecting some kind of miraculous cure <laughs> so. for unconscious bias or that I haven't engaged 
laid out a template for them to follow so that they can be rid mm-hmm. of their unconscious bias. And I've critiqued the IAT, the implicit association test, because a lot of organizations that I've worked with just get their uh, uh, employees to take this test. And once they get a score, they, they just think, oh, my score isn't very high, so I yeah. don't have a lot of biases, things like that. And that's seen as a training that you've taken the IAT. And I've critiqued that in the book as well about how we don't talk about it. And it's actually not a training ground for your unconscious biases. And I, I there is you cannot train people to be rid of unconscious biases. I think the first step, huge step, which I really wanted to do with the book is to make people aware of them and how insidious and systemic and structural some of these biases are and how deep their impact can be. And once we start thinking about these, we become more aware of them in our own actions. And it might seem like, oh, that's a, such an easy thing to say, but actually it's a very difficult thing to do every day when we become aware of them we educate ourselves we read more slowly we become more aware of whether we are falling back on our stereotypes and we are falling back on our biases and another thing is that some of the decisions as i say when taken really rushed we can fall back on our biases so the other step is that if we are recruiting somebody hiring somebody um working legal context then we try and take our time with these biases thing is that every solution for debiasing will depend on a specific context. So I cannot say a police officer, how they debias would be very similar to how I would acknowledge mm. my biases and get rid of or minimize them. Because the context is very different. The kind of biases that person might have or the nature of those biases and how that affects their work would be very different to me. So I can't make a generalized framework and say, follow this 10-step plan to debias. And whoever tells anybody that, I think, is just a scam because nobody... As lovely as that that would be, unfortunately not. I think the important thing you're saying as well is that it's not just a quick fix. Like, it's ongoing work. It's not as simple as just like, oh, okay, we've done the training and it's done now. We're all good. Mm. I think that's what I tell organizations. You can't just have half a day or one hour. Say, that is a first step. That's a huge step because it makes people think and it makes people reflect. But it has to be an ongoing thing. Like right now, we're talking about racism, and I think it has to be an ongoing thing. We can't just stop now. Um, another thing is, obviously, there's a lot of like simulation experiments which have shown that when nurses were asked to step into the patient's shoes while assessing them for pain, they were able to make a more accurate mm-hmm. diagnosis. And that is the stepping into somebody else's shoes. We often talk about that, like metaphorically. And so if you do that, that creates a kind of a more empathetic response to somebody to understand their perspective. And that is something that can be done a lot while we discuss microaggressions, for instance, because often people, it's very difficult to understand how a joke, supposed joke that we made has made other person feel quite like so um, targeted or yeah, how they've made them feel. But if we try and step into somebody else's shoes and try and eat from that perspective, then it really creates a more, we can be more aware of how our own biases and our actions have affected other people. And it's, again, it's a simple thing to say, and it seems very a simple solution. It's actually a difficult thing to do because we often don't do that. And we find it very difficult to do that, to see a situation from somebody else's perspective. Um, and, and there are a few th- other things I talk about in the book. But again, nobody can give anybody a whole template for curing them of unconscious bias and taking the IAT is not unconscious getting rid of unconscious bias no amount of training 
one hour training doesn't get rid of our unconscious bias. So those are some of the things I would say. So this is goodbye from mentally yours. So go away, enjoy your day, get on with all your chores from mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. If you've been struggling with any of the issues we've been chatting about today, please give the Samaritans a ring on 116123. You can also find them online at samaritans.org. You can find us online. We have a Twitter account, which is at MentallyYRS. And you can also join our lovely Facebook group, which is simply called Mentally Yours. See you next week. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 